Parshas Vayera opens up when Avram Avinu lifts his eyes and he sees on the horizon three, what he assumes are wayfarers, and he runs out to greet them, bows down full face in the sand, and says, please do not pass from your servant, please come in. Avram brings him to the area around his tent. He quickly runs out to prepare food, prepare beverage, and he stands over them while they're eating. And after preparing this meal, and while he stands there as a waiter, the malachim turn to him and say, Aye sari shtecha, where is Sarah, your wife? Vayomer, and Avram answered, Hinehi ba'oil, she is in the tent. Now Rashi is bothered by the problem that this sounds inappropriate, meaning this man welcomes you into his house. This man gracefully acknowledges you and takes care of your every need. And while you're sitting there eating his food, you start asking questions about his wife. Where's your wife? It sounds rude. It sounds inappropriate. And Rashi comments that these were Malachi Asharis. These were the highest level of Malachim. Yodim Hayu, they knew very well Sar Imenu Heichan Haisan. They knew exactly where Sar Imenu was. So why did they ask, Where is Sar your wife? They wanted to make her more beloved in his eyes. They wanted to point out that she's a tsunua, she's modest. They wanted him to answer, She's in the ohel, she's in the tent. She's not out here, she's not in the public eye. And while he would answer that, it would reinforce the understanding that she's a tsnua, <clears throat> a modest woman. Why did they go through this process? <inaudible> to make her more beloved in his eyes. Now, <clears throat> if you look at this Rashi, you might be bothered by the following question. We're not dealing with newlyweds. We're not dealing with kids. We're not dealing with people who are just beginning in this thing called marriage. We're dealing with Avram Avinu, Sarimenu, at a very advanced stage in their life. But even more, if you'd ask people what is probably the biggest obstacle to a successful marriage, most people would acknowledge the fact that self-centeredness is the major problem. It's about me, what's in it for me, how can this serve me? But you're dealing here with two of the most other-centered people you could ever imagine. You're dealing with tzaddikim who are loving, who are giving, who are kindly beyond any description. You're dealing with people who are so other-centered, so connected to another human being that their marriage would be hard to imagine. Just as an illustration, <clears throat> Rashi tells us the reason why Chayesora is immediately after the Akedah is because there is a direct connection between the Akedah's Yitzchak and the death of Sarah. The Sultan came to Sarah and said, you know what happened? No. Well, your husband took Yitzchak, yeah? He went to the area of Hara Maria where the base of Migdash is going to be built. He built a, built a Mizbeach, built an altar, tied your <clears throat> son up. He took a, a sword. He was going to bring it down on his throat. And Rashi says that before the son had a chance to say, and it was stopped, when Sarimenu heard the news that her beloved son, in her mind, was killed, she was so distraught and so troubled that left her. But if you look in the Rishonim over there, you look in the Achronim, as they explain Rashi, it wasn't that she was troubled that, Oive, my son. She viewed that knife through the eyes of Yitzchak. And she said to herself, oh my goodness, what did it feel like for him to be under that macheles? And what did it feel like for him? He must have felt such pain. And that emotional connection that she felt to her son was so powerful that when she felt his pain, Parcha Neshmasa ran away. Yitzchak at the time was not a young lad. He was 37 years old. But as a mother to a child, she was so bonded, so attached. She felt his pain so acutely that when she thought he was suffering in this manner, she literally died. It would be difficult to imagine the love, the bonding, the connection between Sarah Imenu 
and Avram Avinu. Two perfect Sadiqim. Every line, every expression weighed and measured with one criteria. How will my spouse feel about this? How will it affect them? The Shalom bias in that marriage is very, very difficult to imagine. If so, this Rashi becomes very difficult to understand. Because it's clear that the Malachim were overstepping their bounds in a certain way. They're asking a question that's inappropriate. Yet they felt they had to. Why? Could they lechava be'nei to make her more beloved? I believe that their Shalom bias was tremendous, powerful bond of attachment. Why did the Malachim feel we have to <clears throat> ask a question? It might be even slightly inappropriate because we have to make her more beloved. It sounds very difficult to understand. And if you don't fully hear the question yet, I'd like to share with you a question that my Rebbe, the Shiva Zetzal, asked at a little bit later stage. Slightly after this, the Malachim tell Avram that we're here to tell you about Sora, that she's going to have a son. But Tishak Sora Bekirba, Sora laughed in her heart saying, how could it be? I'm an old woman. My husband's an old man. It can't be. Hashem says to Avram after, why did Sora laugh? <clears throat> why did Sora laugh saying that Aniza Kanti, that I'm too old? And Rashi on that Pasuk makes a very important observation. Sora laughed because there were two reasons why she couldn't have a child. I'm too old and my husband's too old. Yet when Hashem told back to Avram that Sora laughed, he left out half of the story. Hashem said, why did Sarah laugh saying that she's too old? Yet Hashem left out the entire other half of the story about Sarah's husband being too old. <clears throat> Explains Rashi, Shina Kosov. The Pasuk changed around the story, because of peace. Hashem didn't want to say that Sarah said that Avram's old, and therefore Shina Kosov. Now just so you understand, Shina Kosov is a polite way of saying if it could be that Hashem lied. Allah is, you're allowed to lie for Shalom Bayas. And that Hashem changed the truth on some level in some way. Because Hashem did not want to say this expression that Sarah said, you're an old man. And therefore Hashem left that piece out, changed it around, and had it be that Sarah said, I'm old. And the Rosh Hashem asked a very penetrating question on this Rashi. Shina HaKasuv, when we lie for peace... That's because potentially you could have a Shalom bias problem. You don't want to have that, so you change the story. But let's in fact say that Hashem said, Sarah laughed because she said, I'm too old and my husband's too old. Do you think Avram Avinu would have fallen apart to pieces? <laughs> my wife called me an old man. He was a Zakin. He didn't grow up in a juvenile culture where youth is exalted and looked up to. Every year of his life was another accomplishment, another huge, huge change in himself and the world in which he lived. His days were precious and he invested them wisely. He's now standing at a point in his life where he's a huge human being. And he's proud of the fact that he's lived every year of his life in such perfection. He's not embarrassed about the fact, I'm a decrepit old man. He lived after this another 70 six years anyway. But the point is that this is not the kind of insult that's going to destroy this man. He's not going to look at his wife and say, hey, how could you think that about me, say that about me? So why is it that Hashem felt that it was appropriate to change, to be Mishana, to lie, so to speak? It doesn't sound like it's appropriate to do, and it doesn't sound like the right thing. And I'd like to see if we could understand the answer to both of these questions and by doing that, get a better understanding as to the Torah's perspective and the Torah's approach to marriage. And to begin this work, let's start with the following. The Medrash Rabbah tells us that a matron, a very wealthy Roman woman, once asked Rabbi Yossi Bachalafta a question. In those days, the Roman Empire had tremendous regard, tremendous respect for Tamir Chachamim. Many of the Romans were considering Judaism as a possibility. And you'll find many discussions back and forth of philosophy, of understanding between the Romans and the Chachamim. 
One very wealthy madam, Matron, was <clears throat> apparently had conversations with Rabbi Yosef Bechalavta, and she asked him as follows, How many days did Hashem create the world in? <clears throat> Rabbi Yosef Bechalavta said six. Okay. And since that time, what has Hashem been doing? Answers Rabbi Yosef Bechalavta, <clears throat> Since that time, Hashem is mezavek zivugim. Hashem is matchmaking the daughter of this one to this one, the daughter of this one to this one. At which point this matron says to Yosef Bechalavta, What? <laughs> That's not a big deal. I could do that. I have many maidservants, <clears throat> many slaves, and I can match them up in a, in a heartbeat. What's the big deal about that? Says Rabbi Yosef Bechalavta, <clears throat> If that's small and insignificant in your eyes, you should know it's as difficult to Hashem as Kriyash Yamsuf. At which point Rabbi Yosef Bechalavta left. This woman took it as a challenge. And the Medrash tells us that she took 1,000 male slaves, 1,000 female slaves, matched them up. You to you, you to you, you to you. Okay, let's go. She made Shaduchim. The next morning, she goes to visit her slaves. And she sees this one with a black eye, and this one with a broken arm, this one with a broken leg. What happened? What happened? You get creep, you gave me that woman, that woman. Oh my goodness. And she goes running to Rabbi Yossi Bar-Khalafta, and your God is great. Your Torah is true. Says Rabbi Yossi Bar-Khalafta, isn't that what I told you? If you think it's easy to make matches, you should know in front of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's as difficult as splitting the Yam. And I'd like to share with you what I think we can take from this Medrash. And that is the fact that matchmaking is not so simple. But not just because it's not so simple to find the right match, but because the whole concept of marriage is very, very questionable. Let me explain to you what I mean. If you own a business, it is a wise idea to hire talent. If you need talent in financial areas, if you need talent in marketing, hire talent, but don't bring in a partner. If you know anyone in business, if you know anyone who's had a partner, it invariably ends in a very bad way. <clears throat> Whether it's 10 years later or 20 years later, a difference of thinking, a difference of approach, and almost every partnership ends up in a machlokas and an end. And the only thing worse than a partnership is if it's a partnership with family members. Because then when it ends, it's ugly and really, really difficult to separate. But the reality is that being a partner in a business venture with another human being for any length of time is difficult. Why? Because no matter how alike you are, no matter how much you share the same goals and aspirations, there are different approaches, different ways of viewing things. There's my way, there's your way. And every partnership in business, almost every one, after a while, whether it's 10 years or 20 or something by 25, ends and is gone. But here's the point. <clears throat> That's only in a small area of life. Taking two people who are very alike, <clears throat> who have an interest, and asking them to create this business and run it for any length of time is very much fraught with danger. When you ask a man and a woman to get married, you're not asking them merely to be business partners. You're asking them to share their lives together. Every aspect of their life, everything they do. And men and women are vastly different. As a matter of fact, men and women have so little in common that wisdom would say they're not compatible. If you take a look at boys and girls, take a look at young children, you'll see that even at a young age, boys and girls are vastly different. They behave differently, they relate to things differently, they communicate differently, they have different interests and desires, different value systems. There's an interesting study that's done, Daniel Goleman writes about in his book, Emotional Intelligence, he says there was a study done of three-year-olds, public school kids, and what they found was that three-year-olds at that age, if you ask the girls or you ask the boys, who's your best friend, about 50% of the boys had a girl that was a best friend, and the same with the girls, 50% of the girls had a boy that was a best friend. At three years of age, 
mixed-gender best friends was common. They took the same group at five years old, and they found that only 20% of the boys named the girl as his best friend, and only 20% of the girls named the boy as her best friend. But by the time this group was seven years old, not a single boy had a girl who was his best friend, and not a single girl had a boy that was her best friend. Why? Because they had nothing in common. They played different games, had different interests. They were in different worlds. And by the time they were seven years of age, they had so little to do with one another that the idea of having a best friend from the opposite gender was outrageous. And what's interesting to note is that these differences don't decrease as children age. When children grow from 7 years of age to 10 years of age to 12 to 15 to 17, it's not like the differences between men and women become less. They become much greater. And by the time they're at the age when they're ready to get married, they're in vastly different worlds. They have their own ways of reacting, different ways of thinking, and different value systems, different ways of communicating, different ways of feeling and behaving. My Rebbe Roshiva Zatzal would often quote the Gemara that Noshim Am Atzma, women are a different nation, men are one nation, women are a different nation, they come from vastly different places. And here's the observation. You have a man and a woman who are coming from totally different backgrounds. They were brought up in different homes with different ways of doing things, different approaches, and different outlooks based on their family values. They're vastly different in temperament because every human being is different one from the other, but they're tremendously different because of gender, because men and women are so different. You put them together for a short courtship, you let them go out a few times, whatever it may be, and then you say mazel tov, and for the rest of their life they're supposed to live in the closest proximity in peace and harmony. And if you think about it, marriage should never work. Because what you're asking this chassan and kala to do is to take totally different lives with totally different interests, totally different approaches, and you're asking from this moment on, everything you do will be together. You will share the same bank account. You will share the same interests. You will vacation together. You'll raise your children the same way. You're going to be one unit. But you're not asking them merely to be business partners. You're not asking them merely to share one aspect of their life. Everything from this point on, they're supposed to do together. And you ask them to do it in peace and harmony it should fail miserably. Not a single marriage should succeed. Nevertheless, Hashem wants marriages to succeed. And to allow that to happen, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created different tools and different forces to allow man and woman to bond together in peace and harmony. And we'll focus on a few of those tools because they're vital for the success of marriage. The first tool is something that's known as infatuation. Infatuation is this strange sort of almost chemical change in the brain. You can see the chassan and the kala, ooh, they get this kind of like woozy, kind of glassy-eyed look, and they do strange things, strange behaviors, strange sort of reactions. And you could tell that they're gone. If you'd like to carefully watch this thing called infatuation, it's actually very, very interesting. Because scientists today tell us that if you do the brain chemistry analysis, look at the chemicals in the brain, you'll find that there are very real changes. The dopamine levels, adrenaline levels, serotonin levels change dramatically. As a matter of fact, they say that the changes of a young man and a young woman were in this, when they're in this stage of infatuation is similar to cocaine use. Meaning when you use cocaine, you get high, it changes the neurotransmitters, changes your brain chemistry. The similar sort of effect when the chassan and the kala look in each other's eyes and go, ooh, 
and they're vastly different people. They act differently. They speak differently. And if you analyze it from a strictly, what we call a dispassionate vantage point, if you analyze it, it's a blend of mania, dementia, obsession. If you were looking at a psychologist, you would call it a mental illness because they've changed radically and dramatically. And they view each other differently. Their normal, sharp, critical eye, highly observant in any other situation, is dulled, and they see everything in rosy, beautiful pictures. I'll give you an example of this that I find most telling. One of the sharpest people that I know is my wife. I trust her judgment, her wisdom, and I heard her say these words. We were newly engaged. She was on the phone with a friend of hers, and I couldn't believe as I heard her say these words. You know, no one's perfect, and I know it can't be, but I'm telling you, he's perfect. And I'm sitting in the other room listening, and I'm saying to myself, well, I'm not going to be the one to tell you this, but you are in for a rude awakening because no human being is perfect. And yet when the chassan looks at the kala, and the kala looks at the chassan, he's perfect, she's great, it's unbelievable. This thing called infatuation is a tool, a significant tool that allows a young man and a young, young woman to agree to join together, and oftentimes it's the start of a successful marriage. But I want to share with you a little anecdote. Two scenes, <clears throat> scene one and scene two. Scene one goes like this. A young man <clears throat> and a young woman are walking in the street, one next to the other. And at a certain point as they're walking, he trips. Oy! She says, oy, oy, are you okay? Are you, are you okay? Scene two, same young man, same young woman, <clears throat> walking in the street, he trips. And as soon as he trips, clots, what's the matter with you, she says. What's wrong with you? Why don't you watch what you're walking? What's the difference between scene one and scene two? The difference is that scene one was when they were Hassan and Kala. Scene two is when they were married for three years. And you see, what happened in that case was that the infatuation ended and what was supposed to be the next stage didn't begin. Infatuation is a very short-lived stage. It's a magical phase. It's a sort of music playing in the background and the dopamine levels in the brain changing, but it ends. It has a specific purpose to allow the beginning to allow the start, but it's supposed to then turn into real love. It's supposed to turn into a real commitment, a bonding, an attachment that's much, much deeper and much, much real. Every chasen and every kala feels it's going to last forever. I'll always feel this way. And every one of them <clears throat> finds out that in six months, or in a year, or in two years, the magic is gone. But the magic had a very particular role to play. <clears throat> it was the sulfur on the match that's supposed to start the fire, but it wasn't the actual part that's supposed to continue. It had a role to begin, but then real love, <clears throat> real attachment, real bonding one to another was supposed to take over. And unfortunately, what often happens is that instead of taking the next step, instead of building the real love in the marriage, the chassan and the kala rely on the magic and they assume it's going to last forever. It starts fading, it starts waning, and before you know it, there are different people living under the same roof, living vastly different lives, and they find themselves in big trouble. And if you'd like to know what is the most single vital criteria for the success of a marriage, it's love. You see, when there's a climate of love in the marriage, then it's a successful marriage. He's a good guy. He has flaws, it's okay, but he's a good guy. If there isn't love in the marriage, he's a creep. Everything he ever did was lousy, and it's one thing he did right, even that was bad in and of itself. 
when there's a climate of love, of acceptance, of we're in this together, if that's the climate of the relationship, you'll have a successful, beautiful marriage. If that is missing, then there is no hope because a man and a woman are so different and they have to make so many thousands of decisions all the time on so many big deal issues of life. If there isn't love in the marriage, that marriage is going to be very, very short-lived, and even if it lasts for any length of time, it will be a very miserable place to be. You see, the reality is that not only are men and women different, not only do they come from different vantage points, not only do they have different upbringing, every one of us human beings have faults. And every once in a while, when that rare moment of honesty, when you look in that mirror and you ask yourself, am I perfect? Hmm, am I the easiest person in the world to live with? Am I just the most easygoing, perfect human being? Hopefully, in that rare moment of honesty, you'll quickly realize that, no, I'm not the easiest one to live with. Why? Because every human being, all of us, have quirks, things of ways of doing things, either too neat or too messy, too demanding or too laid back, or super uptight or super unuptight. We all have our styles, we all have our ways, and it's okay. That's what being a human being is about. But the problem is, when you're living with another human being, who also has his or her idiosyncrasies, also has his or her way of doing things, also has a different approach and has his or her own faults, well, guess what? You now have to live with this person in peace and harmony and put up with their shtick. It's bad enough for me. Me, I'm very tolerant. Me, I'm very forgiving. Everything I do wrong, I somehow manage to explain away. But there's another person here with her or his issues. If there's a climate of love, tolerance, acceptance, it's okay. She's a great person. She has flaws. I can live with it. It's okay. If there isn't love in the marriage, it is a very, very difficult situation. John Gottman, who is a psychologist who studies marriages in depth, and he studies them very, very carefully. He puts couples in chairs and videotapes, conversations after conversations, which doesn't just videotape. He measures pulse rates, different physiological responses. He has it down to a science. He can tell you with over 90% accuracy whether the couple that comes into his lab will remain married or be divorced within a short time. How is he so accurate? He says that the single criteria that is more telling than anything else is something called contempt. If they respond to one another with contempt, as in disgust, as in ugh, the marriage is toast. It's history. Because the reality is that love is vital. Love is the key ingredient. It's the glue of a marriage. If there's love in your marriage, it will survive all different sorts of things. But if love is missing, then each one will rub on the other. Each different lifestyle and different temperaments and different ways of doing things will rub one against the other. There will be fire, not friction, but flames of fire. And for the success of a marriage, there must be love. And if you'd like to understand the answer to why the Malachi Hasharis asked Avram, where is your wife? It was really quite simple. Avram had done to them a favor. <clears throat> he gave them food. He gave them drink. They felt obligated to do something back. What could we do for you? The greatest favor they could do was increase the Shalom bias. It was not a marriage in jeopardy. <clears throat> it wasn't a marriage at risk. It was a tremendous marriage, love and bonding. But there are new levels and additional levels. They wanted to give a gift. What was the gift? to make her even more beloved in his eyes. They weren't teaching Avram Avinu a chiddush. He said the words, Hinehi ba'ohel, she's in the tent. But it somehow re-awoke in that sense, allowed him to feel a sense of pride. She became more beloved. And that process took her from, took their marriage, I guess, from level 99.99 of total harmony and peace, brought it a new level. And the point to take from this Rashi really is two points. 
Number one, <clears throat> Shalom Bayis is holy. If the Malachim overstepped their bounds a little bit, <clears throat> if they asked a question that wasn't so appropriate, where's your wife? It was because they recognized the value of Shalom Bayis. And not Shalom Bayis when there were troubles and problems and issues. <clears throat> Shalom Bayis in a near-perfect marriage. There are new levels, <clears throat> new dargas that you could reach, and you have to value it and understand it. But the second point to take from this Rashi might be even more important, and that is that love requires work. Infatuation is easy. In the world, they use the expression falling in love. Falling in love is very easy. He meets her, she meets him. It's like chemicals going off in the brain. You can almost see the capsule that goes off, like it releases the chemicals, and he's gone and she's gone. That stage called infatuation is very easy, very intuitive, very natural. And it's an important tool. It's helpful. But that's what it is, a tool to get to the next stage. The next stage is a real bond of love, of attachment, a real bond of togetherness, and that takes tremendous work. Many, many couples had huge infatuation and ended up divorced. And many couples had very little very little natural attraction, but they did the work, <clears throat> they did what they were supposed to, and they have a beautiful bond of love and understanding <clears throat> that this love requires work and understanding that the real love that lasts doesn't just come naturally is another very important lesson to learn from this Rashi. But there's one more step. Rav Feldman in his book, <clears throat> The River, the Kettle, and the Bird, tells an interesting story. He says that a man came to him with a very serious Shalom Bayes problem, a lot of trouble, a lot of issues, things going on in the house. So Rav Feldman sat him down to talk to him, <clears throat> and at a certain point he asked him, so tell me, how is your communication? And the man said, oh, communication? That, we have no problem. That one is terrific. Rav Feldman said, what do you mean? And I said, listen, <clears throat> I'll tell you what happens. Every night when I come home, we sit down to dinner, and right away we, we sit down to talk. And I don't waste time with any small talk. We get down right to business, and I discuss all the things that she's done wrong and all the ways that she could do better. At which point, <clears throat> Feldman says he knew exactly where the problem lies. You see, <clears throat> if this man made it a point to notice everything that his wife did wrong and made it a point to allow her to know this and <clears throat> allow her to know the better way of doing things, what he was doing was poisoning the relationship. There's something in the world called criticism. <clears throat> criticism sounds innocuous. It sounds not very dangerous at all. I point out to my wife that she did something wrong or sloppy. What's the big deal? And I'd like you to understand that the information there is not a big deal. But the message is, the message is you messed up. You blew it. I look down upon you because of what you did. And while the words may not be a big deal, and in fact the slip-up or the floor may not have been a big deal, the message is. What the message says from a husband to a wife is, I don't approve of you. Not that I don't approve of the act. Since you're the one who did the act, and I'm the one who's pointing it out, the message that she hears clear as day is, I disapprove of you. And even though intellectually each of us know that that's silly, and come on, just grow up, that's very fine and well intellectually, but we human beings are not pure intellect. We have emotions, we have feelings, and if you would like to poison your relationship, if you would like to destroy your marriage, be a fault finder. Find on a regular basis everything that your spouse does wrong. Point it out to him or to her. And I guarantee you'll be living in Gehenna. You will suffer the rest of your life. But come on, it's true. He really messed up. He was late again. He bounced another check. He really blew. You don't want me to, de- to deny things? I mean, just live in a, in, a, in a Disney channel? Come on. We have to be real. And if you'd like to be real and find the flaws and the faults in your spouse, it's fine. You could do it. Just be prepared for the consequences. The consequences are Gehenim. 
Because mayim ponim mel ponim, like water reflects, the heart of human being reflects. If you criticize your spouse, even for the best of reasons, even with the best of intentions, what you've done is you've stabbed them in the heart. And you didn't mean it. And she may not have even perceived it that way. But a husband looks for acceptance and approval of his wife. A wife looks for acceptance and approval of her husband. And what you've provided is exactly the opposite. And the reaction comes sometimes right away, sometimes later. But it reflects one to the other. And what happens is it destroys any human relationship, surely in a marriage so much more so. And I believe that's the answer to the second question on why <clears throat> Rashi explains why Hashem changed. Shiva Zatzal explained that Hashem was not afraid that Avram Vina was going to break down and cry, Oh, I'm an old man. But on some level, <clears throat> maybe an infinitesimal level, it would have been perceived as a slight barb. My wife thinks I'm an old man. I'm not, not young anymore. Avram Avinu was proud of Zikna. <clears throat> he was usually proud of his being a sage. But on some level, it's pejorative. It's somewhat being put down. And on some super, maybe even imperceptible level, Avram Avinu would have felt, <clears throat> she's a little bit critical, he would have felt a slight barb, and it would have marred the finish on the marriage by almost what you and I wouldn't see, but it would have taken a marriage that was near perfect and taken it down a notch. And Hashem feels that Shalom Bayes is so critical that it's worthy to change. <clears throat> if it could be, it's worthy for Hashem to lie, to protect Shalom Bayes. And I believe that both of these Rashis are fundamental to understanding what a marriage needs to succeed. The critical, vital ingredient for the success of any marriage is love. The poison to any marriage is criticism. And the reason why it's destructive is because it destroys love faster than anything else. Like pouring vinegar into the eyes of your spouse, it will destroy him or her. And even if you're right, I don't practice everything I preach, I wish I did, but my wife knows not to ask me how the food tastes. She learned long ago that she's not going to hear the truth. If she burnt the potato kugel, <clears throat> if there's too much vinegar in the salad, she's not going to hear it from me. But why? Your wife is asking a favor. Come on, you have to, come on, you have to be honest, right? But those words, even when she's asking, <clears throat> and even I don't mean them to be critical, there was certain negative connotation, and it's destructive, <clears throat> it's damaging. If you value your marriage, you'll understand how vital love is and how damaging criticism is. And I think the first thing that we need to focus on is how to keep the love in existence and how to protect it. I've had the chance <clears throat> over many years now to read quite a number of different secular works on marriage. And all of them have advice. If your marriage is in trouble, do this. How to save your marriage, do this. You want a better marriage, do this. And oftentimes when I read them, I sort of say to myself, it it almost sounds like advice for fighting. Like, you're going to fight, fight this way. Meaning, almost like one book's attitude is, listen, since you're going to fight, we recommend using boxing gloves. You know, that way you won't kill each other. Another book has a different approach. We have a better solution. Boxing gloves, you know, no, no, better yet. Put on head and body gear so that way even if a punch gets in, you know, it won't, won't kill your spouse. We have a new system. Our system is even better. Who says you're always going to have <clears throat> boxing gloves and body gear? Use pillows. Always fight with pillows. That way you really can't hurt your spouse. It's almost like each one has a better way to protect your spouse from your jabs and her barbs and back and forth. Better ways to fight. And while the truth is much of it is important, unfortunately at some point, I'd like to share with you <clears throat> the most critical step which will avoid so much pain starts many, many, many steps before that. And that is working on the bond of love, of attachment. It will save you from so much fighting. It's not going to eliminate all of it because we human beings make mistakes and things occur. But if there's a climate of love, if there's a bonding between husband and wife, everything changes. And the way this has to happen is in a very intuitive and very simple way. You have to keep the romance in the marriage. And what that means is just like when you're chassan and kala, you send notes and maybe text too often and do those sort of things, you keep that going. 
You make sure that you send love notes. You make sure that you take time to buy a card, give flowers. Every couple should go out at least once a week. Once a week you go away and you spend time together in a romantic setting. You don't talk about issues or problems or finances or you just have a good time just like when you were going out, just like when you were Hassan and Kala. Because keeping that romantic spark, keeping that interest is what's vital for the success. It's a huge part of building the bond of love. It's a tool that Hashem gave us. The first tool is infatuation. The second one is romantic love, but it requires using it as a tool. It requires talking, spending time, being very careful, being sensitive, being polite, showing those behaviors that a chosen and kala instinctively and intuitively know, but continuing showing it, working on it, keeping the romantic spark alive. It means going out regularly, and it means taking mini vacations every few months, you find a place to go, doesn't have to be expensive, a not so expensive hotel, you take a few nights, you take a few days, and you spend time together as a couple. If you do this, you build that bond, you build that romantic attachment, your marriage flourishes. If not, it starts waning, it starts waxing, and it changes radically. And I'd like to share with you how significant this point is. One observation. At this point in Chumash, how old were Avraham and Sarah? Right? How old were they? It happens to be that Sarah Imenu was 90 and Avraham Avinu was 99. You see, most people, when you talk about working on a marriage, get it. Oh, I get it. Shonari Shona, right? You got to buy the cards, got to send the love notes, got to be romantic, got to call it up during the day. I got that. It's, that's what Shonari Shona, the first year, that's what it's about. You build the bond and then you're done. <laughs> now we have a great marriage. Let's go about life onwards and upwards. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. It requires constant, constant work. Constantly being romantic, constantly being in each other's lives in a meaningful, significant way, constantly looking out and showing that you're looking out one for the other, but in a very particular way. As a chasen to a kala, husband to wife, in a romantic manner. Avram and Sarah were married for decades, and yet the malachim were concerned, to make her more beloved in his eyes, because working on a marriage does not mean the first year. Everyone, first-year marriage, manages somehow to find time to go out. But it's when you have three kids, and you have to find a babysitter, and it's very difficult. And you finally find the time, and now i got to talk to my husband about all these issues. No, 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 no. It's Tuesday night, date night. We talk about nothing. We just enjoy each other's company. Relive those moments. Rekindle that sense of love. Rekindle that sense of enjoying each other's company, and we talk about nothing, no agenda, no particular issues. We're just having a good time together. And if you do this and continue doing this, your marriage continues to grow and continues to flourish. But if you don't do this, it's a very, very sad situation because if the love does not continue and does not grow, the friction of one against the other starts building and building, and before you know it, it is Gehenim. You know, you ever hear the expression, guys love to say this one, <clears throat> once you catch the fish, you don't feed it worms. Right? Listen, I caught her already, right? I, she agreed to marry me, we're married. I'm not going to have to take her out, buy her flowers, presents, cards all the time. Come on, once you catch the fish, you don't feed it worms. If that is your attitude, I'd like to share with you that you better catch yourself another fish because the one you got is going to spoil. Because if you don't go out, <clears throat> if you don't spend time, if you don't show that you care, one for the other, then the love will not build, and the love will start waning, it'll start deteriorating, and before you know it, you're going to be in big trouble. I've heard it said in the name of Rav Palm, <clears throat> Rav Palm used to say, the courtship must continue. The courtship means the way you acted when you were going out, courteous, almost gallant, <clears throat> as a gentleman and as a woman. You look in each other's eyes, you treat each other with respect and with care, you make sure that you do the things that people who love each other do. 
And you should have an ongoing love affair with your wife, with your husband, on a regular, ongoing basis. If you do this, then what happens is your marriage flourishes, your marriage grows, love grows. You'll still have issues, and you'll still have many things that you'll need to work on. But if there's love in the marriage, it'll be a beautiful, successful marriage. If there isn't love in the marriage, forget about it. You're in big trouble. And one of the keys to working on this is exactly what Rashi tells us. What the Malachim did was they made Sarah more beloved in his eyes. Each spouse has to recognize that part of my role as a spouse is to provide respect, care, and also I should be beloved to her, she should be beloved to me. What that means in plain, simple language is that you get married, you're still responsible to look good, make yourself appear properly. Unfortunately, I've heard it said often that we have the mirrors on the wrong side of the door. Women, before they leave the house, make sure their shaitl's on right, make sure the makeup's perfect, make sure that when they go out to the world, they look presentable. But when they come in, there's no such attention. A woman has to make herself attractive to her husband. A husband has to make himself attractive to his wife. It means on a physical level, It means on an emotional level. It means you have to make yourself more beloved. You have to make yourself more chaviv. When a wife looks good, it is a wise husband who compliments her. For two reasons. First of all, because it's very important to a woman. Hashem created this entity called beauty to win a husband's heart. There's a certain effect. A woman stands in front of a husband. Husband looks at her and sees her beauty, and it causes a certain attachment, causes a certain feeling of love. Attraction has a very real part in a marriage. A wife has to make herself attractive to her husband, and a husband has to notice and compliment her. Compliment her, number one, because it's important to her. Hashem gave her the teva, the nature to desire to be pretty, desire to be attractive to her husband, and it's a huge chesed to tell your wife that she looks good. But there's a second part to this that's even more important. You see, when you stop and say you look very attractive, you're going to notice it. And you're going to appreciate it. And one of the funny things about a chosen and a kala is each is so special in the other's eyes. Each one looks with such wow at the other. And then they get married and they stop looking that way. And they start putting on the normal sort of critical eye. They start looking at things differently. And they start looking at each other in a different way. And then the marriage starts to fade and things start to become a problem. You have to look at each other with eyes of love. You have to compliment each other. You have to find the good in each other. You have to avoid at all cost criticism. Even if it's true that your wife is late or sloppy or your husband leaves his socks on the floor or squeezes a toothpaste in a totally wrong way that any normal person would know is wrong. If you would like to make your marriage miserable, point it out. Because you'll pour vinegar right in his eyes and you'll make it very difficult to be happily married. And what this Rashi is sharing with us is fundamental concepts. Number one, marriage is holy. If these Malachi Asharis acted in a way that's slightly inappropriate, they overstepped their bounds, and they asked, where's your wife? It was for a very holy reason. What was the holy reason? To make her more beloved. Because there are levels and levels and levels of loving a wife. Making her more beloved was something that was holy, and the Malachim felt they wanted to do that. If you walk in as Chosen and Kala with huge sense of infatuation, that's a nice beginning may be relevant, may not be relevant. Many, many successful, beautiful marriages had little infatuation. <clears throat> if you happen to have had infatuation or you have it, it's a good tool, but understand it's going to end. It always does. And if you're going to marry for love, and <clears throat> the sense of love being defined as infatuation, of we looked in each other's eyes and wow, we were gone, <clears throat> you're going to find that when it fades, it's empty. Infatuation is a tool, but it's supposed to be then turned into real love. And real love requires a lot of work. The first tool in building real love is what we've been discussing now, romantic love, and that's the sense of appreciation, of affection, 
of notes and calls and romantic time together, spending time as a couple. And that doesn't stop with Shona Rishona. It goes throughout the marriage. Even if you're married 50 years, even if you're 99 years old and 90, there has to be love in the marriage. Because the reality is that men and women are vastly different. Different in temperament, different in nature, different in outlook. They have nothing to do one with the other. Look at children when they're three, they're five, and they're seven. As they start to develop the male tendencies and the female tendencies, they separate and they go into different worlds. And the older they get, the more different they are. To ask a young man and a young woman with different genders, different upbringings, different outlooks in life, to live in harmony and peace should be impossible. As a business venture that will fail eventually, as Rav Yossi Barchalafta was explaining to this matron, a man and a woman being married is a very, very difficult alchemy. It's a chemistry that really requires all the right ingredients. The primary first ingredient in a successful marriage is love, but love requires more than just maintenance, it requires building it. And the first tool to build it is romantic love, to share together, to look in each other's eyes, to speak, to make sure that you send notes or call, make sure that you're in each other's world in a very significant way, that you show your husband or your wife that you care, and you do it on an ongoing, regular basis. It also requires, which we'll speak a lot more as we get into this, not finding fault, because fault is the poison to any relationship. And I just want to close this session with one last thought. How good was the marriage of Avram and Sarah? If you'd like to know how good, the morale says to us, ki Avram Avram and Sarah were one unit, more than any other man and woman in history. Their marriage was the quintessential perfect marriage. Total oneness. <clears throat> Bonded. One unit. No I and me, us. Totally, completely devoted one to another. And totally, completely connected. They were in absolute harmony, living in total peace. And this is the couple that Rashi says the Malach Hasharis overstepped their bounds in order to increase the love. This is the couple that Rashi tells us that Hashem was careful. I think, I don't want Avram to hear that his wife was critical. It wasn't exactly critical. It wasn't exactly the kind of thing that would have bothered him. It, it somehow could mar to the slightest extent the finish. The perfect couple with the ultimate marriage, the Malachi Shoris were concerned about, and Hashem himself, if it could be, was concerned about. I think there's a powerful lesson for us. Marriage is supposed to be a beautiful, harmonious, joining together a oneness of husband and wife, but it doesn't just happen by saying the words of Mekodeshes. It requires a tremendous amount of work. The first part of the work is the romantic love, <clears throat> always keeping that spark, always keeping that interest, always avoiding the criticism. And as we go through the rest of the sessions, we'll see the other steps involved.